0: You should be embarrassed about the first product you release or the first version of the product that you release if you aren't slightly embarrassed by it then you probably waited too long
1: hello and welcome to lewis and kyle show an interview podcast where lewis and i share the best ideas and business advice from our favorite entrepreneurs real estate investors and content creators today we have john sherwin on the show john is the co-founder and co-ceo of hydrant Hydrant is innovating on hydration through a diverse product line of powders, aiming to reshape the way that the American consumer thinks about hydration. They've got big goals, and John is an incredibly curious founder who's passionate about the hydration problem, and it was really cool to talk to him.
2: Yeah, In this episode, we talk with John about how and why he started the company and when. We talk about his experience bringing in outside investors and what he's learned from doing that. We talk about the interesting relationship he has with his co-founder, being co-CEOs as well. We talk about what he had to change when he finally got his product into big stores like Whole Foods and Walmart. And he gets into some of his advice for other people with high growth startups. I hope that you enjoy our conversation with John and I'm going to switch right over to it now. John, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you so much for your interest in coming on our show. We're excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, I know that a lot of people have probably seen Hydrant on their Instagrams because y'all have a really colorful, flashy brand there in a good way. Uh, But for those who aren't familiar with the brand and yourself, could you just tell us a little bit about what Hydrant is, what your role is, and then we'll kind of jump into the founding story after that.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm one of the co-founders at Hydrant and Hydrant makes a powdered hydration mix. So we like to think of ourselves as being at the intersection of water and wellness. What does that mean? Like can come across a little bit nebulous. It means that the products we make are centered around water and hydration. That is like the platform use case. And as we grow the business, as we grow the brand, we're adding in other functional products rooted in hydration that help you go about your day uh, with a healthier routine. Um, and, and that's really how we think about the product. It, it's about finding those different moments in your day to add a product that uh, improves your wellness.
1: That's a beautiful brand marketing statement. So what makes your product uniquely good versus competitors in the market? Like specifically, yeah, so- n- not just the entire thing, being at the intersection of, of water, and, um, water and wellness, but like your, water product where you, you put it in water, I guess, versus like liquid
0: IV. Sure. So I think to, to like answer the, the, to do the question justice, I've got to mm-hmm. give you a little bit of like how we came to that first original skew, which was the hydrate skew. Let's do it. Uh, when I say skew, I mean, stock keeping unit, I should just say the the hydration product. So our original flavor was lime and uh, it's a blend of electrolytes, real fruit juice powder, a little bit of sugar. Uh, you mix in water, you drink it, it makes you feel great, tastes good. It's refreshing. And, you know, you can go on about your day. How did we get to that product? So the answer is when I was in college years ago, I saw these medical students drinking this powdered sort of uh, pharmaceutical product when they were hungover after sports in various different contexts. And I tasted it, it was disgusting, but (laughs) wow, was it effective? I mean, this stuff just worked in a way that we now know it's very hard to describe hydration in sort of branding terms. Uh, like what is feeling hydrated even feel like this made you feel hydrated. It was powerful enough that you, you kind of suddenly realize, Oh, this is what it means. So I wanted to create that, but I wanted to create it in a way that didn't taste gross, that had accessible branding that really educated the consumer on, on what that feeling was like, what, what, why do people feel hydrated? What, what goes into that feeling as a whole? So I started on this journey way back in college of, trying all the hydration products available in supermarket shelves. So in the UK, we had brands like Lucozade. We had brands like in this medical, medicinal format that was powdered. Um, I was trying coconut waters. Then I moved to the US, did the same process all over again. Although now e-commerce was a, a bit bigger of a thing. So I was also looking on the internet, trying to find products across the board. The main thing we found was that either these products contained too much sugar, so were unhealthy had an ineffective balance of electrolytes. So you weren't truly getting hydrated at the end of consuming the product, or they tasted gross and had artificial colors, flavors, and sweeteners. So those were like the three main problems that we set out to solve um, with our product. So to explain like why ours is better, there is real fruit juice powder. So we have more real ingredients in the product. That also leads to a more subtle flavor profile that doesn't make you, it's the kind of thing you can drink first thing in the morning and you're not grossed out by it. And you can drink two in a row. You're not grossed out by it. It's not so super sweet that it leaves you just kind of like, ugh, you know, I'm done. It's not like that. Uh, and the goal was to make it so that people could proactively hydrate with the product throughout the day. So we designed the flavor profile and the ingredient list to be minimalist and kind of in, in that way that, that just sort of suggested repeat consumption so that people use it that way. I'm sort of rambling at this point. I'll stop there. Did that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I
1: think it definitely did. Um, and it's something that you talk about a lot is that idea of proactive uh, hydration versus reactive hydration. Could you briefly touch on that as an idea?
0: Sure, yeah. So I think hydration as a concept, I mean, it's been around for a long time, the idea of drinking water, of course, but I think if we go back to like the, the early days of sports drinks were in the late 1950s, And typically it was always linked to sports. And so you would be hydrating after sports, you know, you sweat, then you need to put back what you lost in sweat. And there's nothing wrong with that mode of thinking, but we kind of came to this realization that there are more activities in life that dehydrate you and people are looking for that edge on their health and wellness. They're looking for the edge in performance mentally as well as physically And just drinking water is always good. There's never a problem with that. But if we're able to like pull some levers in your body to allow you to absorb more of that water more efficiently, we're able to have you performing better and feeling better throughout the day. And so like that's, that was that initial target customer was like these people who are looking for the edge and want to be sort of getting ahead of dehydration. So rather than waiting until they feel the symptoms, which include like tiredness, fatigue, dry mouth, dry skin, uh, headaches. Those are standard symptoms of dehydration, but often humans are not great at decoding those symptoms and saying, oh, what I need is a drink of water. That, you you know, first you're like, oh, I've got a headache. Maybe, Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I need a coffee. No, you're probably dehydrated. Like, so rather than getting people to that stage, we educate people on this idea of, hey, get ahead of it. Drink a hydrant, get way ahead of ever feeling those symptoms and then just go about your day feeling good. And that—that's really the difference between the reactive and proactive positioning.
1: Yeah, I I mean, the reason I had you comment on that is because, like, that is a mindset that Lewis and I subscribe to, and 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 want to bring out in a a lot of these conversations. Is just the fact that a lot of people that we interview are proactive people—people that you know wake up in the morning and have think they are attacking the day; the day isn't attacking them. Um, and I think that, that was an interesting piece of your, your brand is that you want to, to instill in these people the idea that they need to be proactive about everything, including their hydration. But I know you, you know, got a biology degree from, from Oxford and you're a really smart guy. So like scientifically, without getting too far in the weeds of, of what your product does, what is it that <clears throat> is actually happening in my body? when I drink hydrant, that makes me more hydrated.
0: Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm at a point now where I've distilled this down to a, a pretty good description. You guys, you guys tell me if this is too much. So the way I like to describe it is there are three levers of hydration. The first lever is, is there sugar present? Yes or no? The second lever is, are there high and balanced electrolytes in the drink mix? And the third lever is, is the osmolarity of the solution lower than your blood? And I can describe what that is in just a moment. So the reason, let's start with the electrolytes. I should have started with that one. That's number one. So with the electrolytes, uh, electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, zinc, like present in every cell in your body, used in a myriad of tasks. Sodium, just to give you like one very concrete example, is heavily involved in the transmission of nerve signals in your body. It is literally moving in and out of your nerve cells to help conduct a signal from my brain to my finger right now. Sodium is involved in that. You lose sodium, potassium, other electrolytes in your sweat and also when you pee. And so putting them back and replenishing them is a key thing to do. The other piece is they're involved in regulating fluid balance in your body. And so if you don't have enough of them, your body has a tougher time balancing fluids. So you wanna make sure there's enough of both of those. The second lever is sugar. And this one's definitely the most controversial of the levers. You want to have the right amount of sugar so that you can leverage this process in your small intestine, which is effectively a pump. It's called the sodium glucose co-transport mechanism. I speak too fast. So that was probably way too You're good. Fast. But basically in the presence of sodium and glucose, there's a pump in the wall of your small intestine that uses the glucose as energy to pump sodium molecules into your bloodstream. Water molecules like to move from an area of low concentration to an area of high concentration. So if you Mm -hmm. pump a bunch of sodium molecules into your blood, the water naturally follows them across the membrane in your gut. Mm -hmm. And that actively is moving water into your blood versus passively, which is just where the water is naturally moving across a gradient. So that's the second lever. The third lever is osmolarity which comes back to this idea of gradient. So uh, osmolarity that in layman's terms is uh, how concentrated a liquid is. And uh, also fairly interchangeable with osmolality. Uh, the two words are just different ways of measuring it. But the idea is your blood has a kind of an osmolality, a, a concentration that is usually within a certain range. And what you want in the perfect hydration product is a Lower osmolarity in the hydration product, so that the water naturally wants to move into your bloodstream, where it's higher concentration. So, if you take a typical old school sports drink packed with sugar, sugar has sugar is you know there's a molecule in there, and so that drink is going to have a higher osmolarity than your blood, which means when you drink it, the you're not able to leverage that natural gradient of the water wanting to move to the area of higher concentration because the water is already in the area of higher concentration. So. With hydrant, what we did is we made sure there was a little bit of sugar. There's not a ton. I think right now, four grams of sugar per serving. Maybe we have one with five grams of of sugar per serving, but there's really a range there. You want to have low osmolarity. So we lab tested that. We made sure that we were using literally the minimum possible ingredients, the maximum possible function, so that we pull that lever really hard and a high balanced electrolyte content. So the easiest way of, of explaining that one, I know I already touched on it, but if you look at a traditional sports drink, the ratio of sodium and potassium is more like your sweat and the ratio of sodium potassium in a drink like a hydrant is more like that in your blood than that in your sweat. So you have Mm -hmm. more potassium in there and a high level of sodium as well. So they're more balanced.
2: I love that. I think I'm going to give you an A plus for concise, but detailed answer Mm -hmm. uh, that that covers all the bases and is enough science to pique the curiosity, but not to put you to sleep. So um, I'm giving that an A plus. I I have two follow-up questions On the science front, and then we might switch to some more business topics. Uh, First one's kind of a random one. So I take a a chelated magnesium and feel like I have like a thirty to forty-five minute like boost of mental clarity. Is that total placebo, or is that like a possible consequence of having like a highly bioavailable magnesium? And the second question is, can I compensate for a hydrant with quantity of water? So if I drink a gallon of water a day, does that compensate for? You know, drinking a lower volume of water with, but then with the right uh, stack, like you just described, in hydrant. So I'm going to take the second question
0: first, and then we'll get get do the magnesium second. So generally, I would never recommend that people try and drink less water by using an electrolyte powder, like less water overall. I think what we've found is people who start using our product will. They, they self-report to us that they're drinking more water overall because they're starting to enjoy the taste of it. And they're feeling this, this feedback loop of like, oh, wow, I feel great when I drink this product. That said, if in like a shorter space of time, let's say over the course of a couple of hours, you chug the gallon of water and then you drunk, let's say um, 16 ounces with a hydrant in it, depending on your state of hydration before you drank, I would wager that the hydrant is more likely to sort of stick. I be absorbed into your body where it's needed because without the electrolytes and without the sugar, you're not able to pull those levers of absorbing the water into your bloodstream fast. And then from your bloodstream into your cells where it's actually needed. And so that's where you get that sort of the water just goes right through you idea. Like if you chug a gallon of water, you're not gonna be able to sort of hold onto it. But if whatever you're drinking has the right balance of electrolytes, a little bit of sugar, you're able to absorb it efficiently. I'm not saying don't drink as much water total. I think anyone who does make that claim is playing with fire. It's, it's like a really risky area to, to play in. So that's the first part. The second part, the chelated magnesium. So this is a question that I, I cannot say I'm qualified to directly answer. We do use magnesium in our product, um, but that is more from a sort of muscle cramping and fluid balance standpoint. It's not about the mental performance piece my experience of magnesium is more around sleep and kind of anti-anxiety use cases. So these are things like we're, we're constantly thinking about products that we can make and what ingredients we would use. And the research we've done on magnesium tends to be more in that side of the spectrum rather than in the mental performance area. There are other ingredients that I'd say are slightly more interesting from the mental performance standpoint. That said, we tend to per product function will like build our ingredient deck based on the, the science that we've seen and magnesium never made it into the deck for like an energy or focus product. So there may be some great science behind that. And I just am not qualified to talk about it. So I, I don't want to put a foot wrong here.
1: Yeah. And I really enjoyed that piece of one of the interviews that I listened to with you is like your conviction about the um, effectiveness of the ingredients that are in your product. And that you, if, if customers like it, but it's not doing anything, you know, Hydrant's not going to use it because it's not actually doing anything. So I I really respected that, but I think we'll probably turn to the, to the business side of things now. So uh, I'm interested in the the very early days of Hydrant before your, your co-founder before the Indiegogo, like what was the, inflection point for you where you took this idea of like, you know, these medical students are drinking this interesting powder. It's not good. There's, there's something interesting here to, I'm going to devote, you know, a part of my life to, to building this business and, and making this a thing. Like when did you make that decision and what was the context around it?
0: Sure. So I think the, the easiest way to explain this is to Talk about it in terms of my my upbringing and how my family comes from this sort of fairly entrepreneurial lean, shall we say. So my grandfather is an American grandfather. He was an immigrant. He started his own businesses. My dad works for himself. My brother, elder brother works for himself and had started a business. And so all of these role models in my life had their own businesses and, and didn't sort of play by the rules, if you like what I mean by playing by the rules is play by the rules from a career standpoint. And I went to school in the UK. I went to university in the UK where I think it's a more common, that feels like a social pressure to follow a specific path in your career. Like you go to a good school, you go to a good university. And then like the logical next step, if you have offers from, you know, banks, consultancies, professional services companies, basically is to take that next step to a prestigious, you know, it could be a law firm. Uh, and continue to excel year after year and, and climb the ladder. And I think my role models in life uh, were very much people who, who didn't climb ladders. They sort of built their own ladder, I guess. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use that analogy. And so for me, you know, it had always been in my plan to uh, post-university to climb my own ladder. I, I would also add, uh, in case there are listeners who are thinking about going the other route, I did not get into any of the consultancies that I applied to. I do not test well on like quick math. I, I always just get totally tripped up by those. So um, you know, this this was like a path that I was excited about. But also, like you know, I, I sent some speculative applications the other way, and, and I didn't get in. So don't fear if that's what happens to you. I guess is is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and so for me, I think I because I'm I'm half American. Um, I always had seen the U.S. as a place where there was a lot of opportunity and there was a lot more support for people taking a sort of unconventional route and so i basically moved to uh silicon valley got a job at a startup there because in my mind that was the best place i could go to learn how to start a business in an area that i i viewed at the time as, as having like the most potential for me to um you know start my own one day so tech in general it was a software company uh, and i did two years there it was phenomenal two years, learned a ton. And and the approach for me was very much like, how can I accelerate my learning as much as possible? As soon as I felt like I was plateauing, I decided I am going to move back to New York and try out a few ideas and try and go go it alone, basically. I do not recommend that people necessarily quit first and then try and start the company. (laughs) It's better if you have the idea of what you're going to be working on first because I I burned up some of my personal runway. So I had savings from my time in in the Bay where I was very frugal and I had a bit of runway to play around with some ideas. And I tested one idea, which was like a snack distribution company, realized like, I do not want to be a middle layer. I want to be a brand and product. I'm sort of a product person. And then After a few months, I kind of realized this problem was something that I had been playing around with for the longest time, buying, like sampling every new product I found in hydration in order to eventually find like the one and it kept never showing up. So that was the time when I figured, you know what, this is, this is it. Like, this is the thing I'm going to make. I have the right background for it because I understand the science behind the product. I'm able to read the literature at a sort of, at an academic level that informs what balance of electrolytes we use and what makes a good hydration product versus a bad one. And I think the other piece of, of, of my degree was learning how to kind of translate science from this very prose heavy academic script that no one in their right mind is gonna read through because it's boring, but translate that into a sort of more engaging, easy to digest concept. So that, that was really the, the thinking there. So the catalyst was like it was it was always in the background that I was going to start something. From there I think I I threw myself into the food and beverage scene in New York. I went to a few events, I met a few very smart people who remain kind of informal advisors to this day and got their opinion on some of the biggest decisions. So like one huge decision early on was do I make this a liquid or a powder? And there were some pretty great reasons to be a powder and there were some good reasons to be a liquid obviously we chose the powder route, and I'm very glad that we did. But at that point, like I had always been wanting to take a run at doing something for myself. And it felt like the right moment trend wise and the right product for a guy like me with a science background to take on.
2: Yeah, thank you for telling us that whole story. I think it puts a lot of things into context and kind of shows how you got to where you are now. So I'm curious to ask about the next piece of it. So it sounds like, you know, you had the idea brewing for a series of years and you know, based on the circumstances in your life eventually got it started. So my next question is about the investment piece and kind of like the next big milestone. So how far were you able to get things on your own and or with the co-founders you brought on in the process? And then at what point did you feel like, again, our learning and our progress were accelerating and now they're plateauing and the only kind of way through this next obstacle is big outside help and funding. So can you walk us through that next big phase?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think early on, the decision I made was to go with a crowdfunding campaign for that first like slug of funding. And that was partly like a sanity check. Am I crazy for thinking this is an opportunity? Uh, and with the small sample size of people in food and beverage that I spoke to, and, and supplements too, like were they crazy too? So it was like, let's put this out into the real world before we, we start like investing or, or raising money from outside parties and get pre-orders, which is effectively what that, that process is. And so that was, I, I view our Indiegogo as being like largely unsuccessful. Yes, we hit the targets, but it was barely enough money to do a first production run. And that then left me in a situation where I had product, but I had no money to market the product. And the thing about marketing is you learn about your customers through marketing, especially with Facebook and Instagram. I'm able to say, okay, let's try this value prop against this audience and see, you know, does that work better than this other value prop against the same audience? And from that learning, you can very quickly start to, to like, build your momentum and start to make headway. So the Indiegogo thing was great, but it wasn't enough money. And the next move was, okay, yeah, I've I've got to go out and raise money. And this wasn't something that I had a ton of experience with it being my first time around. And it was funny at the time, I had a bunch of um, posts up on AngelList for founding team members. The idea being like, I wonder if there's someone out there like me, who's able to work for basically no money, but for a pretty significant equity stake uh, in the business just to help us get this thing off the, off the road, off the ground. And very serendipitously a mutual friend who had done some marketing with me introduced my now co-founder Jay to me who had just started business school like three weeks earlier and had been thinking about this space, this industry specifically in this type of product, but um, had ended up going to business school instead of starting something because his skill set is more on that finance side of the spectrum, where mine was more from the product side. Um, so we got introduced, and three or four weeks in, he was like, "You know what? Like this is it." And I was like, "Cool, yeah, let's do it. I'm in." So we shook hands uh, on a partnership. He dropped out of business school and took his tuition money and put it in the business. So that was really like the seed funding was um, him taking a huge bet on dropping out of it was Wharton. So you know he he had a big brand name behind him. Um, but he dropped out, invested in hydrant and that then was great seed capital to start testing the value props, which, um, you know, being a small brand, we were able to test different messaging, different audiences, start to build a thesis of where the growth was going to come from over the next six to 12 months, which we then turned around into raising our true seed round, which was from angel investors and the Sixers innovation lab down in Philadelphia. And with that capital. We did a rebrand of the product with some of those learnings we'd had on how like, hey, you know, I'll give I'll give you a, a concrete example. We used to think that, you know, our ideal customer was someone who went to fancier uh, workout classes in a studio, probably had kids, and uh was female. And after doing some advertising, we kind of realized like that customer is bombarded with a ton of other brands and not not just in our space, but like wellness brands in general. And so getting their attention is that much harder. And, you know, there are a lot of people who could use our product who are not being marketed to. And so we kind of wanted to build a more approachable brand than our V1. Um, And so first thing we did after raising that seed round was invest in a rebrand and a bit more research into like, how should we be talking about ourselves and the product and the problem that we solve. And so, yeah, that, that was really how we allocated that capital and building up like more and more of a base uh, to learn because there was so much learning. My, my co-founder Jay also does not come from a, an e-commerce background. So we were finding smart people and getting their advice at every turn and, you know, continuing to spend to learn more. Did, did that answer your question? Or I, I feel like I might've rambled a bit there.
1: No, you're, you're good. Okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, I, I was going to say that that's an interesting concept thinking about, you know, your customer avatar from the beginning was this sort of affluent woman going to Soul Cycle. And like that specific type of person is probably very expensive to get in front of because people are willing to spend as much money as it takes to, to get that brand loyalty from a group of people like that. Like, like Peloton, for example, that comes to mind as somebody who'd probably spend any amount of money to make that a, a trend or get a cult following from the people that can afford it. So I, I think shifting from that is, is probably smart in terms of the amount of dollars going into your marketing budget as well. But you're talking a lot about, a lot about Jay and I, I want to touch on you guys' relationship a little bit. Um, you guys are both co-founders and both co-CEOs. So how are you moving through? Like this is kind of, a difficult question to get out like how do you both how do you deal with conflict i guess is a good way to put this
0: yeah I mean, it's, it's so important to uh to our business that that this be figured out so um i think if, if you'll indulge me, I'll go back to kind of when he first joined and, and how that process was. So Absolutely. when he joined, it was a late summer, kind of early fall. And he,
1: he, he refutes the, the timeline and a couple of the events. I know, I know that much. Like, I think he, <laughs> he called, emailed you first. He was ready to go day one. You, you took a little bit more time, something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that actually, it's funny that still holds true the, the way the two of us operate. In many ways, he's like all gas, and I'm the brakes uh, uh-huh. on some of these things. And it took us time to figure out like what our relationship across the various different lines of business um, would be. But early on, I think the the biggest learning for me was I had been doing this for a little over a year on my own and had no experience starting a company. And kind of, I guess when it's, it's sort of, it becomes your baby, right? Everything was was mine. And this guy comes in, suddenly he's my co founder and he has all these ideas that he wants to execute on. And there were areas where at first I was a little defensive of it, to be honest. I, I was kind of like, well, hang on, like, should we be doing that? This is how I think of the brand. And it, and it was very much my baby. So I think for Jay, he had an uphill battle early on. And, and, you know, kudos to him for battling through it. And I had a lot of growth to do in terms of understanding, like, okay, there needs to be a lot, we have, we have to be open to a lot more change because the whole business has changed, right? Like the business now is so different to the business uh, a year ago, which is so different to the business a year before that. And that was something that I needed to learn. And so I think for Jay early on, I mean, the first couple of months, he was probably like hitting his head against a brick wall. Like, wow, this guy is so slow. Like he, he is really moving, like very, um, what's the word I would use I was just taking very calculated decisions at every point. Now, Jay was making calculated decisions too. He was just a lot more willing to take on some risk. And I think what he understood that I didn't initially is as a startup, speed is one of your advantages. If you don't take that risk, you're kind of screwing it up. Like you need to have some risk appetite. You have to, like one of our advisors put it to me this way. You need to play to win, not to play, not to lose. If that makes sense. There have to be some big bets. There have to be some big swings. And we've made some mistakes. We've had some expensive bets that have gone really wrong. And, you know, for me going into those, I was like cringing, like, oh, there's no way this is going to work out. And, you know, some of them didn't work out. Some of them did. And credit to Jay, like he kept racking up some of those big swings. And that was something that I had to learn. You know, this is something we need to be doing. Uh, And so we, the other thing I would say is like, we got incredibly lucky. I don't think many people have a co-founder relationship go as successfully as ours has after, I mean, he says three weeks, I say four weeks of, uh, until our handshake deal going into business together, we've been incredibly lucky. There is no way you can say like either of us was like so smart to think the other one was the right fit, ton of luck, but we both have a growth mindset. And I think that's the key. We both go into things thinking, okay, how can I be better? How can I get better at um, whatever the task I'm working on is or at this type of interaction. And that has been like the core, I would say of our relationship is we both care a lot about getting better. So, you know, we will put our hand up if one of us is, is making bad decisions or is dealing with things in a way that might be difficult for the other, you know, we we'll put our hand up and say, hey, you know what? Like I need to get better at this. Like let's work on it. So that, that would be, I, I would say that the core answer is having a growth mindset and getting really lucky.
2: Well, the growth mindset part is uh, is within your control, so that Perfect. that can be something to focus on. I think Kyle <laughs> and I have a lot of similarities in that. I tend to be the we always talk about, you know, what would this podcast look like if if I, if only I was the host, or if only Kyle was the host, and if only I was the host, I would have done a hundred episodes in twenty five days and quit, and then that <laughs> that would have been it, because I would have just. Everything else but Kyle's kept me kind of married to the one a week cadence, which we've sustained for a long time and continue to sustain because it's sustainable. Uh, whereas my personality is the just all gas, then eventually be like, oh, shoot, there's a lot of uh, back end work to, to actually fulfill what the things I have started. Right. So that's kind of how things work between us. And it's always interesting to see in these kind of longer term partnerships, how you those lessons come to be learned and the importance of learning them. And then once you have that awareness, you can leverage it to to move forward. I want to ask you now kind of about the future of Hydrant. So you have, you know, this beautiful website. You have a, a pretty large variety of different SKUs, different products that are uh, mm-hmm. have different flavors and sophisticated packaging and hundreds of uh, happy ratings on your website, hundreds on Amazon. Uh, so kind of where is your head at for 2021 for the company and then kind of the next five to 10 years for Hydrant?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I think um, the key for us, even from day one, we always knew that this was gonna be an omni-channel business, not just a direct consumer business. So, you know, we looked at the Warby Parkers, the Casper's, the Harrys of the world, saw the playbook that they used and kind of understood that they had come four or five years ahead of us and that playbook would not work anymore. Um, that was kind of like the, the real takeaway there. We saw that if we could build online first, we could learn a ton about consumers, build a better product and get a ton of loyalty before heading into retail where there are gatekeepers in retail. You have to go through a buyer. You have to convince that buyer that you're not going to you know, screw up their metrics because they are measured on how well the stuff on their shelf is selling. And so we could take data from our online business, bring it into a retail buyer and say, Hey, look, like we're kind of crushing it over here. We have all these customers and here is their demographic would you be willing to put us on the shelf? We think it's gonna sell really well with your customer. You know, We give them some of the data and they can crunch the numbers themselves and say, hey, I agree, Like this is a, this is a solid bet. And so for us, year one was always about learning. I mean, it's always gonna be about learning, but year one was, was very specifically learning about e Year two was, was e-com and starting to plant the seeds for uh, some of that offline side of the business. So we opened Whole Foods in, uh, I wanna say the fall of 2019 in the Northeast region. So relatively small, I think it was like 47 doors. And that was our first taste of, okay, now we've got to start thinking about merchandising. It's, you know How does it look on the shelf? How is our packaging that we built for e-commerce not fulfilling its needs at retail? Those were the kinds of questions that we needed to start thinking about in order to take on retail in a bigger way in 2020, which is what the plan was. Obviously with the pandemic, going offline was kind of a weird thing to do. So a lot of our retail plans were delayed this past year. Um, We did, however, launch our biggest retail account to date, which was Walmart. We did, we opened 2,700 stores nationwide. And that, let me tell you, is just a huge business change from going from a, a type of business where we really control most of the customer experience. We control, you know, the inventory entirely. You know, if a truck is delayed, we can go sold out on our website, no problem. When you're working with the biggest retailer in the world, you lose a lot of that control and you really have to be you know, playing by their rules. Um, and so, I mean, it's been a phenomenal learning experience for us. And I think it's prepared us well for carrying out the rest of our plan, which is continuing into this omni-channel world where you can experience our brand one way online. And we encourage everyone to, we have limited edition products that will only be on our website ever. Uh, And so that's one way of keeping people, you know, engaged with us as a brand and then in, and continuing to build our retail presence. I I think when you're on e-commerce, you've got to get eyeballs to your website somehow, and then convert those customers, which can be expensive. You know, it costs money to drive people to your website with retail. It's a slightly different equation where you're on the shelf. People are walking past. You're not paying to get that customer. Of course, like there's a margin to the retailer for putting your product on the shelf, but it's just a very different kind of equation. And so we are really focused on hammering that retail side of the business and becoming excellent at executing there. Uh, A lot of it is going to be growing our team over the next year to to make sure we have the right people in place to succeed. And then over the next five to 10 years, I I think really we've, we've scratched the surface when it comes to hydration as a platform for better wellness. I think hydration as a kind of part of your mindshare is going up. People are uh, becoming more aware of when they're thirsty, of the symptoms of dehydration and of the various different products and benefits that are out there. I'm also, as the sort of product side of the business, I'm particularly excited about using it as a delivery vehicle for other products that typically might have been in a sort of tablet or pill form um, where the experience of consuming the product is just kind of terrible. What we've done is, we've made a delivery system that is enjoyable to consume. And um, we wanna kind of explore taking this to places people don't expect uh, from a product side as well. So really it's, it's building that wellness platform that eventually can solve a lot of problems for a lot of different people.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think your statement about a delivery system is uh, much bigger than people realize. But I think that we can move into sort of what we like to call the bonus round, um, sort of non-thematic questions, not linear. Um, So what are you currently, like, what's another hobby of yours? You know, back in college, it was hydration, and that's turned into your whole life. Uh, Is there anything that you're, you're dabbling with right now that in 10 to 15, 20 years, we might see you? we might have you back on with, with another product, another business that you're, 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 currently just sort of dabbling in. Interesting.
0: I, I am pretty open about what I'm excited about outside of hydration. It's an area that I do not have expertise in though. So I want to be really clear about that upfront. I'm fascinated by energy and transport and specifically like from a sustainable angle. So, you know, obviously following electric cars, is really compelling, but also looking at other ways of like cooling down buildings is an energy problem. Energy is at the core of of so much of the sustainability problem. So that's an area that I am particularly interested in, but I recognize that, you know, with my biology degree, I may not have like the best in like physics or chemistry is probably a better starting point. That said, there is one area of biology that has always fascinated me that I, I do tend to read up on as much as I can, which is It's called biomimetics. So it's this idea of taking uh, structures or technologies from uh, animals and plants in nature and applying them to uh, technologies in the human world, whether it's for better performance or higher sustainability. Uh, Like the simple example that is in most books is um, a molecule on the surface of leaves that causes water to sort of bead and just drop off without kind of being absorbed has been turned into a paint coating that you can now paint on well on various different structures so that they are hydrophobic and the water Mm. doesn't kind of cling to them it just rolls right off Um, that's like one example of taking a a structure found in nature and applying it to a, a human problem so i think the the ones that are more around that energy and transport problem are particularly the areas that interest me
2: well, I think that was a deeper and more interesting answer than we even hoped for. <laughs> so I'm going to follow that up with asking what your process is for exposing yourself to new and interesting ideas, latest and breaking, kind of what is your uh your habits for continuing to make sure that you're self-educating and getting smarter even though you're outside the school system, many many years removed, outside of just the research that's necessary for the company.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think this is a problem I haven't cracked, to be honest. Um, I don't think I'm on the cutting edge. I I think hydration takes a a pretty huge mind share for me. And I would like to be better about, you know, tracking um, those different people who are putting out good content in this area. One recent discovery that I've enjoyed is this idea of progress studies, which I think ties nicely to energy and transport. So it's the study of the big leaps in history that came through progress. Like, how do I describe this better? Uh, like the industrial revolution, right. It was a huge change. It was a step change, not an incremental change yeah. in technology. And then like air travel, you could argue is another step change, um, vaccines, another step change in, in terms of like health. Um, and so the study of those changes and the, and like what, what led up to those happening, who the people were that made it happen. And kind of, I, I like to think of it as a sort of a primordial soup. Like what were the ingredients that were present at the time just before the step change happened what led to it and then i think by studying those and looking back at those um it gives us a good window into how we can make sure like we're in that primordial soup when the time comes for whatever the next step change could be
2: yeah i've been recently reading a book i'm about halfway through it called uh where good ideas come from by steven johnson and that book is kind of that study of that exact thing like what are the so darwin's theory of evolution is not a technology but it's a if you use the word technology loosely to mean an idea, uh, it right. is a technology that led obviously to further developments. And it kind of discusses what are the patterns of all of those different situations where Kyle has the saying he's brought up on the podcast a lot of times that history doesn't crawl at jumps. And like, what are the conditions that led to like the person squatting down or history squatting down and then like jumping up next, like what made jumps happen. And then if you look back on it, you can almost deterministically recreate it or at least increase the probability right and the pace of future innovations.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. I think that that's right on point for this progress studies thing. Absolutely. Well, uh,
2: another interesting
1: question, I think is like, you're uh, 29. uh, um, 30. (laughs) 30 now. Okay. You you live in in New York City. We're in the middle of a pandemic. What's your social life like? You're building a business. I know you're probably pretty busy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, this, this is an area that I'm, I'm working on. I wasn't kidding with the uh, I'd like to spend less time on hydration to an extent. It, it's definitely hard to build that barrier between work and not work. Uh, and I think right now with the pandemic, most people have experienced with moving to a remote working sort of policy, the blurry lines of work and play become even more blurred or like I should say leisure time and work time. They were already pretty blurry for me as, you know, the founder of a, um, of a high growth company. So they just got more blurry, I would say. And it's, it takes a, a real effort on a regular basis to kind of reset my own lifestyle and say, hey, you know, this is unsustainable. Like if I continue down this path, I'm going to burn out. And I really need to say, even though there's like a million emails in my inbox that are unread or have not been responded to that may be high priority. I need to switch off for five hours on a Sunday. No phone. Like it's gotta go. So that's like one of the things I do. So I know I'm kind of dodging the social life question because this is more about like how how easy it is for your company to take up everything that you do, like every waking moment. You have to really be intentional about building time for things like social life. You know, seeing family. For me, I'm I'm very lucky like my family is my, my siblings also moved from the UK to the US. And so they're around i see a ton of them and um you know there's a, a pretty good social scene in the startup world in new york and, and outside of the startup world i haven't seen it in a few months because you know hmm. new york was very hard hit early on i think we've been feeling we've been like recovering from from that first outbreak in terms of like what feels safe and uh, when is it okay to see people so it's definitely been tough but i'm excited for uh post-vaccination getting back into it and uh, making sure I I draw a very clear line between work and not working.
2: Yeah. I, I I kind of agree with the way you thought about dissecting that question because you do have to carve out the time for a social life before you can fill that time with a social life. So it's kind of, you're you're, uh, going to create more stress for yourself by trying to inject the social life into your world before actually having taken the steps necessary to carve out the time for it. But I just have one last question for you. It's kind of a, an open-ended one and we'll see where you take it. But if, most of the listeners to, of this podcast, I'd say 18 to 25. Most of them probably have some entrepreneurial ambition, I'd like to think, or otherwise they'd just really like Kyle and myself, which we appreciate. But <laughs> if you were to give, you know, one major piece of advice to someone either starting an e-commerce brand or and or a fitness wellness company, what would that piece of advice be?
0: Yeah, so I I, I have a go-to for this, which is practically my mantra at this point. It is... You should be embarrassed about the first product you release or the first version of the product that you release. If you aren't slightly embarrassed by it, then you probably waited too long. And this comes from a painful lesson I learned early on where for the version one of Hydrant, I spent probably eight months working on getting that formula to perfection. You know, I worked with one company, they gave me a final formula, I tasted it. I mean, like we tasted it multiple times, but at the end, there was just something not quite right. I couldn't afford to engage them to continue on it. So um, I found a sort of freelance formulator and worked with her to like tweak these things. And, And she actually had a fantastic process, but that's for another time in terms of like figuring out how to make it work for us. But what I learned was even after eight months of making it perfect, when I totally could have launched with the earlier version that something wasn't quite right, I would have figured that out. And that could have saved me three to five months, probably. We still had to make changes to the formula. Still, like as soon as we launched it, feedback started coming in and it was like real customer feedback, which is the most valuable kind. Your friends, great. Your formulator, great. Like they're not going to be as hard as real customers um, in terms of like the feedback that they give you. So we had early on, there were some dissolving issues. It was a little, it tasted a little bit saltier than people would have liked. And, you know, we would have figured it out if we'd launched three months earlier and we would have fixed it and we'd probably end up with the same exact product we have today, but we would have been three months earlier, which, in what is a pretty competitive space is is a meaningful difference so that would be my piece of advice is launch earlier than you think you should uh and being uncomfortable with that is how it's supposed to feel gotta ship 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 exactly love that well john
1: you know uh, we really appreciate you coming on and spending your your i don't know what time it is in the uk it's it's morning for us maybe the afternoon for you evening (laughs) Uh, if our audience watched this and and likes you and, and likes your answers and, and wants to maybe get a little hydrated where should we send them to go yeah
0: so drinkhydrant.com is the main place you can also find us on amazon local walmart um those those are the best places to uh really engage with the brand
1: <laughs> and that wraps up our interview with john sherwin uh just a really fun and cool conversation you Get to talk to somebody that is on the on the um you know, bleeding edge of a startup that is raising money and doing things out in the world and selling to Walmart and having a, a big product line that they're expanding. Um, you know, I really like the the website, the feel, the brand marketing uh, of this company. And I think that they'll continue to be successful as they, they solve this problem. I think that, um, you know, one thing he said was about the delivery system, how in the future, that's what he's aiming for this product to be, or, or this suite of products to be as a delivery system for different um, like foreign agents and I think that that sort of like a, a simple sentence but has really big implications if they can do it uh, properly and well um, you know we talked about his social life in New York City and, and how that's changed because of COVID and how the, the the lines between work and play have sort of been blurred and it's, a, it's true for everybody but especially when you're running a high growth startup like I can't imagine uh, what his life has looked like for the last year. So it was just really cool to, to be able to talk to him uh, for an hour a couple of weeks ago. What did you think, Lewis?
2: Yeah, I also had a ton of fun during this conversation. And I when I watched it in the editing process, I saw, you know, there's a lot of laughter and a lot of smiling, which is always fun to see. Uh, I have three takeaways from this conversation as well. But real quick, do want to point out, I think if people are listening to this kind of in the distant future, what you're saying about the delivery mechanism of his product and kind of the, that goal for the company will really expand into something pretty spectacular if they, based on the positioning they already have and the distribution. Uh, but my three takeaways, the first thing that really stuck out to me when we were discussing kind of co-founder relationships and strengths and weaknesses of different team members was the idea of playing to win, not playing, not to lose, and how his partner is really good at that risk-taking, be bold, just go for it mentality. And he's kind of the... Uh, the cover your ass kind of guy who just wants to make sure they're not going to make huge mistakes. And I think that was something I could really benefit from is focusing more on the, the thinking big and acting big, uh, and then covering your downside when you need to, but not solely being concerned with what could go wrong. You also have to play as if things are going to go right as well, if that makes sense. Uh, the second thing I wanted to share was the idea, he just is so naturally curious about his product and his company and hydration and the science and all of the important things for him to be deeply curious about for this to succeed. And it's something that came up in our Naval couple of episodes with Eric Jorgensen and something that's discussed in the book, The Navalmanac is you cannot outwork someone whose work is play to them. And you're not going to be able to outsmart John on hydration just because it's something he's so curious about. I'm like, no matter how hard I work, it's just, if it's like play to him, he's going to be more knowledgeable about it. And that's why if you're company and your startup and your product line are so deeply aligned with just what you're naturally so fully invested in, it's going to be a really beneficial match of interests and circumstances. Uh, And then my last one was kind of his advice for the timing aspect of he had a job in Silicon Valley, but he knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur and kind of trying to decide when to jump and when to stay in the job. And his advice, I think, is really helpful for a lot of people uh, to have the idea first. Don't just say, "Okay, I'm going to quit my job and become an entrepreneur if you have no idea what you're gonna do the day you're not working, you're gonna search the internet for, okay, what companies to start. Uh, a better strategy like he had was actually having a couple of ideas and for bonus points, actually having some traction with those ideas before quitting the day job. I think that's a very helpful reminder. But those were my biggest takeaways from this conversation with John. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed chatting with him. If you wanna support the Lewis and Kyle show, which we hope that you do, Uh, One of the best ways to do that would just be to listen to an additional episode. So wherever you're listening to this one, we have about 50 published episodes in addition to this. So scroll down the feed. Last week we published an episode with our friend Danny Miranda talking about what the three of us have learned from publishing 50 episodes. Before that, we published really interesting conversations with Taylor Pearson about the blockchain, with David Oakley about multifamily real estate, with Dean Murthy about starting a huge clothing empire. There's a lot of great stuff buried in this feed, and I would encourage you to check it out. So that's all I ask of you this week. Check out another episode. And if you don't want to watch our old stuff, you can check back here in a week uh, for a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.